my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And at first I didn't want to do this video because I thought to myself it might cause too much controversy. But then after I got a pretty good response to my video on the Gondor in Transition paper at the Tolkien Society seminar, I thought, you know, maybe maybe people are open to having really just rational discussions about controversial topics and well, here we are now. So the reason I'm doing this video on the question of whether Frodo and Sam are romantically involved in any way is because I came across a piece on Polygon uh, through a Twitter link which is by someone named Molly Ostertag who basically lays out an argument for Frodo and Sam having a romantic relationship basically. And when I first read it, I thought to myself, well, you know, I don't buy it, but that's probably the best argument I've ever heard for it, because most of the arguments for it kind of start and stop with, you know, Frodo and Sam hold each other's hands a lot and that sort of thing. And of course, this piece does get into that, but there's more to it than that. And so at the time, I thought it was at least pretty impressive. I went back and reread it again in preparation for this video. Now I'm not so impressed, although it's still probably the best thing that I've ever read on the topic. There's two major themes that I want to keep in mind while we look at this piece, and one of them is when does the author actually make an argument versus just leave you to fill in the blanks, because that'll become important, and second, at what point does the author, you know, give any kind of meaningful counterexamples or consider anything because when we come to the end of this I'm going to point out how many counterexamples there are that would show that the things that are being used as evidence are not necessarily evidence for the conclusion that the piece is trying to reach. So it, it's kind of a question of what is evidence for versus what is evidence consistent with but not necessarily in favor of. So keep those two things in mind as we go through. I'm going to go through the article itself, kind of lay out the arguments and the facts presented, and then at the end, I'm going to explain why I don't think the argument really works. So to start off, one thing I should note is that Molly Ostertag does say that she's going by authorial intent, and you'll know if you've been paying attention for the past several weeks that I am an authorial intent type of person, and also, this was an issue that came up in the context of the Gondor Transition paper. So, we're actually on the same side, at least in theory, on this question, Molly Ostertag and myself. So, we're going to be looking at the intent, and this is very important as well. So, we're going to be looking at what Tolkien intended, not just what somebody could read into it. That's, that's her position, is that this is going to be his intent is what she thinks that she is getting at. After that, she kind of goes through some of these standard things that a lot of people will bring up in the context of this discussion. For example, she mentions that the relationship between Frodo and Sam is a lot like, and Tolkien himself said this, the relationship between a British officer and his Batman in World War I. Tolkien was an officer and he had his own Batman, and he even says about Sam in one of his letters, I think, uh, basically that Sam kind of is the representation of that kind of a soldier, you know, not the officer, but the everyday soldier who kind of carried the weight of the war and in Tolkien's mind was very much more praiseworthy than himself. 
she also, of course, mentions the fact that, you know, Frodo and Sam hold hands a lot. They, you know, interact in a lot of intimate ways. The fact that Sam in one scene kind of holds his hand and then blushes. This is actually the scene right after Frodo is woken up at Rivendell and Sam, of course, is feeling his hand and then drops it and says it's warm, meaning your hand, sir. In other words, his, his whole arm and hand had been cold after the wound from the Morgul knife. So he's, you know, feeling it to see if it's better. And he had been by his side, you know, day in and day out for however long they were in Rivendell and Frodo was unconscious. She mentions another scene where Sam is just kind of thinking to himself while Frodo is sleeping. And he says to himself, I love him whether or no. And I mean, here, this is a good example of one thing that is a common trend in this piece is that she often doesn't give the full context. She doesn't give all the lines surrounding the the event that she brings up. So, for example, in this particular scene, Sam is, you know, thinking about the way that his master has been worn down by the journey and other things that have gone on. And I'm not going to get into the full context here because if I try to do this every time, it'll take way too long. But the point is, very often she will leave out the broader context of the specific quote or scene and not really you know, get into all the details. She just picks out the one thing that kind of fits the theory of Frodo and Sam are gay. So, you know, that this is one of those. So that's just an example. And by the way, I'm going to link to her piece in Polygon so that you can go read it yourself and you can compare what I say with what she says. And, you know, don't just go from, don't, don't take my word for it. You know, check, check me on this if you want to. She also mentions that Tolkien said in a letter that he was probably most moved by the scene where Frodo falls asleep on Sam's breast. She doesn't give a citation for this, another problem I have with this article, so I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly where this comes up. Tolkien talks a lot in his letters about different scenes, and so it's finding the specific one is not necessarily that easy, and I just wasn't interested in, you know, double-checking every single reference she makes, but another thing she does is she leaves out citations. It's like, if you're going to be making arguments give citations, leave a breadcrumb trail so that other people can check you. That's the sign of an honest author. And I'm not saying that she's being dishonest. I think she's probably right, but it's like you don't you don't gain any points by leaving the citations out. So, you know, if if you want a fair back and forth, you give the evidence and show where you got it from. Anyway, point being this, you know, allegedly Tolkien said that he was most moved by that scene. And I don't know if it's the same scene, but she mentions there's also a scene where it specifically says in the narrative that Sam comforts Frodo with his arms and body. And this is a scene in Mordor where it's really cold at night and they're alone and they have basically no clothes left because they've thrown away practically everything because everything's too heavy and Frodo is already weighed down by the weight of the ring. So they've got very little in the way of supplies. Sam is quite literally keeping Frodo warm with his body. That's that's what that means. <laughs> she mentions the fact that he describes in the story Sam's attack on Shelob as if he, you know, comparing his attack as an animal defending its mate in terms of its ferocity. So, and, and this is another example too, and there's been several already that I've mentioned where she'll use these things that are like kind of oblique, like you could see where maybe if Tolkien was trying to write that kind of a story where that might be a hint, but the question is, does that really say one thing or another? 
he's comparing the ferocity. He's not saying what Sam is thinking. Analogies are not perfect. By definition, analogies are imperfect. So it's like, it it really seems more like she's trying to find secret code than she is divine the intent of Tolkien. But this is a common theme I'll come back to. She mentions again that Sam and Frodo not only hold hands and do other things, but they also, there's four kisses that pass between them. And then there's a scene also where it specifically says Sam doesn't kiss Frodo's hand. And I think this is in the Imin Muil where they're trying to get out of the the place before they meet and capture Gollum. And Gollum helps him get out. But whatever the scene is, Sam is basically sad because of the the burden that he knows Frodo is carrying. And he holds his hand and cries, but he doesn't kiss Frodo's hand. And it's specifically mentioned that it doesn't that he doesn't kiss the hand. But she makes a big deal out of this saying it's really interesting that it specifically says he doesn't kiss his hand. Well, okay, I'm I'm gonna come back to this, so just hang on to that thought. But again, bear in mind the theme. When is an actual argument made? And I'm I'm pretty sure right now I'm up up to this point in the piece I've given you everything that she said in substance, so just keep that in mind. She has a specific line in this article kind of up next, which I wanted to read because this is not so much a fact point, but it's kind of like part of her argument. And she says, when a book is presented as a primary source rather than a work of fiction, it's an authorial invitation to look between the lines and search for hidden truths. Well, maybe... Uh, She doesn't explain why she thinks that's the case. And certainly I think that you could make the argument that the fact that Tolkien goes to great lengths to set up the frame narrative of the story being such that there's a, you know, there's multiple versions of the Red Book, some of which have Bilbo's original story, some of which don't, you know, all these different things. There's certainly room for interpretation as far as the unreliable narrator and, you know, did Frodo write this or did Sam write this? Whose authorship is in question? That sort of thing. There's definitely room to play here. And one of the fascinating things that I like about the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series that uh, Corey Olson is doing, the Tolkien professor, this is one of the running themes in that series is, who do we think authored this piece? Do we think Frodo did that or do we think Sam did that? Uh, so there's definitely some room in there, but I see no reason particularly to think that that gives us license to look for hidden truths in some sense that she me- seems to mean it. I just, she uses that as an argument, but I don't know that I understand the basis for that. I mean, it, I, that seems to be going a little further than we can really justify based on what we have. She then goes on and talks about a letter that he writes, and I think this is a letter to Michael, but it might have been to Christopher, uh, his which whichever son it was, and she says, In a letter to one of his sons, he wrote about chivalric romance as the height of romantic love. And I'm not sure he actually calls it the height of romantic love, but we'll let that slide. Quote, It idealizes love, ellipsis. It takes in far more than physical pleasure and enjoins, if not purity, at least fidelity, and so self-denial service, courtesy, honor, and courage, end quote. This is the relationship between Aragorn and his elf love Arwen, between Eowyn and Faramir, and it is to A.T. the relationship between Sam and Frodo. Well, 
I mean, yeah, there is self-denial, service, courtesy, honor, and courage, but none of those things imply anything more than devoted friendship either. The concept of, and I, you know, in my last video, I discussed seven kinds of Greek love that you can find in Tolkien. The Greeks had all kinds of words for love, and one of them is agape. And what she's describing here is kind of like agape. I mean, you can have agape without having eros. That's really not hard or unheard of. So, uh, yes, some of those terms definitely do apply to Sam and Frodo, but that doesn't imply the other term that was left out of that discussion either. So, anyway, moving on to the next point. Another thing that she notes is that Frodo and Sam's quest bears a lot of parallels to the story of Baron and Luthien. And this is certainly true. There's also a lot of parallels between the Baron and Luthien story and Aragorn and Arwen. In fact, it's really interesting if you think about it, because the Aragorn and Arwen story has all of the romance of the Baron and Luthien story, and Frodo and Sam has all the plot points of the Baron and Luthien story. All the parallels that you can find, the plot parallels are in Sam and Frodo's part, and the romance parallels are in Aragorn's and Arwen's. So again, yeah, there's parallels, but there's also parallels with a lot of other stories that don't necessarily prove anything. So, okay, we got some parallels, and then she moves on again. Getting outside of the context of the story itself, she then goes on to point out that many men in Tolkien's lifetime and, uh, and even within his life, people he knew, were themselves gay. And he, she also points out that there were many officer-batman relationships which turned romantic. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, and she also goes on and talks about how he was great friends with W.H. Auden, who was a poet in America who really, really loved Tolkien's work in The Lord of the Ring, but was also openly gay, and whom Tolkien considered a friend. And then she goes on, oh, well, there's also, she also mentions Alan Turing, who famously was a codebreaker in the war, but was later outed as homosexual, and because of the, the norms at the time, you know, basically ended up being, was going to be or was prosecuted and eventually killed himself. Um, rather than face the disgrace and whatever else would come with it. But then she also gets into another specific example. She says, Most interesting to me, Tolkien was a teacher and fan of Mary Renault, or Renault, I'm not sure, a writer who spent her life in a romantic relationship with another woman. She became an icon in the gay male community for writing sympathetically about same-sex relationships in ancient Greece. Tolkien wrote that he was deeply engaged in her books and that a letter she sent him was, quote, the piece of fan mail that gives me the most pleasure, end quote. Uh, so, and, and she's bringing all this up specifically kind of to address the counter-argument that, well, Tolkien was Catholic. He wouldn't have, you know, he would have been very against, you know, gay romance. And she's like, but he had all these gay friends and all this. So, and... I'm not, I'm not going to leave this to the end to counter because this one is really just kind of its own little independent thing. This is, I think, straw manning the point a little bit because saying that Tolkien is a Catholic and therefore would oppose gay romance does not mean that Tolkien was a Catholic and therefore would, you know, not be friends with gay people in his life. It doesn't mean he can't be friends with, you know, other people who have that, you know, sexual inclination it means that he's not going to 
morally approve of their choices, at least that would be the implication. You know, a practicing Catholic, by definition, is one who adheres to the church teaching on all the moral and religious stuff. And one of those is homosexual, you know, homosexual intercourse is in and of itself evil. It's not an act you can engage in licitly, morally. Whether or not that's true is beside the point. The argument is Tolkien being a Catholic, if he was indeed a practicing Catholic, would have been against that kind of a relationship. So he would have, but there's also the distinction of, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. So he could oppose maybe W.H. Auden's or Mary Renault's lifestyles, but that doesn't mean he had to hate him and be a complete jerk to him. I mean, Tolkien was kind of the consummate gentleman. If you know anything about his life, he was, according to basically everybody who knew him, you know, very kind, charitable, and generous to everybody. I mean, he was so generous with other people's time, with his own time with other people, that he would, I mean, he eventually, like, hid his address and phone number to avoid this, but he would engage in so much response to fan mail and stuff at the expense of other things he needed to be doing Part of that, of course, was also probably to satisfy his own interest in engaging more with his own story. But he certainly was not, you know, the kind of person who would just turn people away or anything like that. So I don't think we have to see any of this as being in support of her point, really, because she's really just kind of strawmanning the opposition. The people who say that, some of them may have an anti-gay bias, but that's not to say that Tolkien did. The argument is, if you're going to take the strong version of the argument and steelman it, he was a Catholic, and therefore he would not have approved of homosexual relationships, even if he was friends with some people who had those relationships. Now, you can argue that he was okay with it, and that he wasn't a practicing Catholic, and that's a question we may never be able to answer, but... Most of the evidence that we have seems to be on the side of he was a practicing Catholic. So many of his letters are full of stuff about the the devotion he had to his faith and the Virgin Mary and how he thought of his mother as a martyr for the Catholic faith and just all over the place. So there's an overwhelming amount of evidence in favor of him being a very Catholic person. So this to me is a pretty weak rejoinder. Next, she gets into some broader contextual clues, and some of those include Bilbo and Frodo being unusual as bachelors. And, okay, this is trying to go for the idea that bachelors are, like, that's almost code for homosexual, but it's like, you can be a bachelor. Some people just aren't interested in marriage or a home life or whatever. Some people just don't incline that way, and that's never been... You know, it's never been the case that everybody who was a bachelor was automatically just assumed to be homosexual because that's never been the case. There's a lot of people, you know, under certain circumstances, I could have ended up being a bachelor myself, but I'm not homosexual. I mean, that's just, it It really depends on a lot of factors. So, but he, she also mentions that Bilbo had whole rooms devoted to clothes because, I mean, now we're stereotyping. I mean, <laughs> this to me is the funniest thing, because she's basically stereotyping and saying that gay men really like clothes. It's like, okay, if you really want to go there, we can, I guess, but there's a lot of, you know, men and men and women who are not homosexual who are also into clothes. Not as many men as women, maybe, but 
there are men that I know that are very into clothes who are very much not gay. I mean, that's just... So the weird stereotyping here is kind of funny. I don't, And I don't even know if that stereotype existed when Tolkien was writing. So I don't even know if that's even relevant. She also mentions that Bilbo and Frodo and basically everybody who is in and out of Bag End was labeled queer by some of the you know, other residents of Hobbiton. And she mentions that the word queer had by the late 1800s acquired strong homosexual connotations. I can't verify this. I looked up online when it started to gain that kind of connotation, and the best I could find was like 1920s, 1930s, I think, which is still before The Lord of the Rings was written, so I'm not sure it's that relevant to the point. But we also know from reading the story that there are a bajillion uses of the word queer that clearly cannot refer to anything like a homosexual relationship. Buckland is considered queer by Hobbiton. Hobbiton is considered queer by Buckland. Bree is considered queer by all the Hobbit folk in the Shire. I mean, it's just, those word, that word gets thrown around so much that I just really don't think you can put any weight on it without something a little clearer to lead you in that direction. Then she gives another line that I kind of want to read word for word here. But as Tolkien notes in another letter... Quote, the greatest of romances, this is kind of, the romance is in, is in brackets because he doesn't quite word it this way. Uh, I think it's supposed to be the greatest of them, but filling in the blank. Romances do not tell of the happy marriage of such lovers, such great lovers, but of their tragic separation, end quote. And there is the logic he applies to the central romance of his book. And that is the logic he applies, rather. So, yeah, Tolkien did say that, and I, I don't remember what letter it is offhand, but it is in one of his letters. I'll, you know, that I could find. But so he's talking about the fact that great romances usually end with, you know, the lovers being parted. Think Romeo and Juliet. You know, that's considered one of the great romances of English literature, and it's one where the two don't get together. And she's comparing this to the Frodo and Sam story, where Frodo in the end leaves, and Sam doesn't get to go with him. But the problem with this is. The Lord of the Rings is not a romance in that sense. I mean, it's a romance in the older sense of a novel or a you know a story of that kind. It's not a romance in what we would call a love story sense. So to call it to to, to say that that line has any significance, there's not a great connection there in my mind. I don't think that really quite works. Now. If you wanted to say it was a romance between Frodo and Sam, then yes, that line would apply. But the fact that he says that doesn't mean that everything he wrote, which might possibly be interpreted as romantic, fits into that line. Certainly it doesn't, because he does have romances that don't in that way. You know, for example, Faramir and Eowyn, you know, they have a romance, and we don't see that, you know, end in that way. We have Aragorn and Arwen. Yes, they're separated in the sense that Aragorn dies first and then Arwen is really sad about it, but they're both going in the same direction, just like Baron and Luthien did. He was not above writing romances where the 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 guy and the girl end up together. He certainly did that more than once. So, again, th th this seems to be putting too much weight on something he said, trying to draw a conclusion, which is not obviously connected to, to the real topic at hand. 
She then goes way outside the story and starts talking about other things in Tolkien's life. And she starts with G.B. Smith, who is one of his early friends in the TCBS, and mentions that many people later on considered a lot of his writings homo homoromantic in nature. Again, she doesn't give a citation for this, so I can't check um, what where she's getting that. But, you know, let's take it for granted as true for purposes of the argument. Um, and he also, Smith, wrote to Tolkien in his final letter, like a day or two before he died, I think, um, basically that I hope you will, you know, write the things that I have been unable to, to do, uh, to put into writing, or I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but basically I hope you carry on the work of the TCBS and, and do the things that I want to do because I don't think I'm going to be able to do them, which is really powerful considering he wrote that like i said just right before he died in world war one it makes you wonder like what he knew and why i mean did he know that he was about to go into a charge and that there was a low chance of survival or either way it's a really powerful letter um but anyway she's using this as a way of saying that well see his writings were considered homoromantic and he's asking tolkien to carry on the tradition well, okay, a lot of people have considered them homoromantic. A lot of people consider David and Jonathan's uh, relationship in the Bible to be homoromantic. People consider things to be things. That doesn't mean they are, and it doesn't mean that Smith intended them that way. And she doesn't get into a long discussion about G.B. Smith's authorial intent. So since she adheres to that, according to her own words, I don't know that we can really draw that much from this statement, really. She then also points out that the epilogue, which was never published with The Lord of the Rings, but which was eventually published in the History of Middle-Earth volume Sauron Defeated, uh, involves a conversation between Sam and his daughter Eleanor when she is a teen or tween. And in the course of the conversation, they refer to the fact that Galadriel was Celeborn's treasure, and then she ends up telling Sam something to the effect that, well, Frodo was your treasure. And she's trying to use this as a basically an analogy, again, like Celeborn and Galadriel were married and in love, and therefore calling Frodo Sam's treasure shows the same thing. So there's that. And then she also brings up the fact that Sam eventually sailed west to be with Frodo. Well, I have a nitpick here because the book I do not think says that Sam... I know it doesn't say this. It doesn't say that Sam went to be with Frodo. It says, according to what was handed down, he sailed west. Now, at the time he sailed west, he would have been 98, some 60 years post-Lord of the Rings events, um, and Frodo would have been 113-ish, I think. So this would have been old even for a hobbit. You know, Frodo would have been gone for 55-plus years by that point, and likely would not have been alive. So I don't think we can even really say that he would have even met Frodo had he gone. We have enough material in the Silmarillion, the Akalabaith specifically, and other things to indicate that when a mortal goes to Amon or Valinor, they don't live longer. In fact, if anything, their life is shorter because, as the elves tell the king of Numenor in the Akalabaith, in the glory of the blessed realm, you're, you know, you would wither faster. You would not gain immortality. You would actually die quicker. 
Frodo went into the West for healing before he dies. Tolkien actually says that in one of his letters, uh, that the idea is that before he dies, he, he needs to be healed. So he's going to die. That's not really up for question. And given what else we know about Middle-earth, he's probably going to die sooner rather than later. 113 would already be kind of old for a hobbit, even one who possessed the ring for 18-ish years. So, you know, the idea that he's going to live long enough for Sam to meet him 60 years later when Sam finally sails into the West, I don't even think that's actually true. So that basically is the summary of everything that she puts into this piece in favor of the theory that Frodo and Sam have a romantic relationship. Now remember the two themes that I wanted to keep in mind at the beginning of this. What is evidence for as opposed to evidence consistent with? And when does she present an actual argument? Almost everything in this piece, and like I said, I've tried to give as much of it in faithfully as I can, Go read it for yourself if you want to double-check me. Almost everything in this is just throwing out facts. Just fact, 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 fact. And there's nothing wrong with providing lots of facts. I mean, if you want to make a compelling case, you want to use as much evidence in your favor as possible, obviously. But the problem is, very rarely does she show you why X fact proves Y conclusion. And I think the reason for that is, well... I don't know, I don't want to argue intent about this. Certainly, it's a clever approach. I don't know if this was the goal or not, but it, it is a very effective approach because in writing it in such a way that you are having to connect the dots yourself, she is actually kind of influencing you to accept the premise in order to find the arguments, in order to prove the argument, if that makes sense. So it's like she's giving you the facts when she's already told you the conclusion and allowing you to connect all the dots in your head saying, oh yeah, that makes sense, that would fit, this, this. But in fact, the argument's not there most of the time. There are a few places where she obviously does make an actual argument and puts things in a logical progression. This means this, that means this. But those tend to be kind of the weakest points, actually, of the piece because I've already pointed out, like the thing about G.B. Smith and the thing about... Um, going to Valinor and the things about, you know, Tolkien having gay and lesbian friends in his life and, you know, all these things that she actually uses as arguments tend to fall flat if you actually analyze them properly. So she's actually expecting you to do the work, more or less, in proving in an argumentative sense that her conclusion is true because she never gives the argument. Nothing she says about what Frodo and Sam do actually is evidence for, in my opinion, the fact that they are romantically involved. And this goes back to something I said I was going to come back to. The idea that Frodo and Sam kissing, and in one case significantly not kissing, quote-unquote, um, is not evidence for much of anything. Because if you actually search the text of The Lord of the Rings, get yourself, if you got an ebook. Use it. I did. <laughs> and I don't even want to go into all the examples because there's so many of them, but I'll just name a few. If you look through the number of times that people kiss and are kissed in this story and compare how many times of them are clearly not romantic, I think you're probably going to find that there's more non-romantic than potentially romantic instances. There's the four between Frodo and Sam, so we're going to exclude those because those are 
clearly not part of the control group, but there are instances where Mary kisses Theoden when he pledges his service. We have, you know, other cases where uh, Frodo kisses Mary and Pippin at the uh, the Grey Havens just as he kisses Sam. Does anybody think Frodo is in a homoromantic relationship with his cousins, too? I mean, like, seriously. Um, there are... Uh, Aragorn kisses Eowyn. Aragorn kisses Faramir. Aragorn kisses Boromir. Or, well, does he kiss Faramir? Maybe he doesn't. I know he kisses Boromir when Boromir's on his deathbed. And there's just many, many other examples. There's so many examples of non-romantic kissing in this story. And this brings up another issue that I think is really important. Not only are we talking about a story which is kind of in a faux medieval setting, which already gives us a great deal of license to say that these kinds of intimate physical contacts are normal, because in the medieval period, and still to this day to some extent in parts of Europe and other parts of the world, not so much in America, it is still very common for people to kiss, you know, caress, hug, whatever, in totally innocent ways. This is a normal thing for a lot of people and was a normal thing even more so in the past. But not only that, we're actually in like a completely fantasy history with radically different cultures. Hobbits don't exist. Elves don't exist. Dwarves don't exist. What are their cultures like? Not like ours, if you actually read a lot of Tolkien's later writings where he's exploring more and more into the details of what would elvish culture be like? What would some of these human cultures be like? What would hobbit culture be like? You start getting into it, and he put a lot of thought, especially into the elvish question, because elves being immortal and having very different, you know, lives naturally had very different lifestyles. You know, the kinds of culture that develop for an immortal race are going to be different than those that develop for a mortal race. Hobbits and men are very similar, but they're still different, so their cultures are going to be different too. So, if you think about it, there is so much room for there to be kind of a, a really a multitude of potential explanations, and the fact that, like I said, they're in a kind of a medieval setting gives us enough reason to think that maybe this is just their culture. And the fact that we have many instances in the book itself where they do these things in non-romantic ways, it undercuts the idea that it's a argument for, or evidence for, as opposed to just evidence consistent with. That is a really key distinction that I think we have to keep in mind here, and why I think the vast bulk of the facts that she brings up are ultimately, if not exactly irrelevant, not very not very helpful to her case. They're just kind of maybe ambivalent. You know, they might lean one way over another, but I don't really think they do. I think it's just it's just a fact that these characters interact in certain ways because that's the way their culture is. So I don't think it actually tells us one way or another much of anything. So at the end of the day, if you actually just look at the piece on its own terms, I think you don't really have that much of an argument. I mean, and like I said, this is in probably in probably all my life, I've never read a more convincing argument in favor of this thesis than this particular piece. So, you know, kudos to her for putting as much possible evidence up there in favor 
that she could possibly muster. I just don't think at the end of the day it proves anything. Yes, she can defeat the straw man argument that Catholics, like, you know, everybody assumes Tolkien must have just hated gays, therefore he wouldn't have written, no, that's, that's a straw man. You know, the other arguments that she puts up, and I'm not saying she's deliberately straw manning it, a lot of people will straw man arguments because they don't understand them, or some people actually do use bad arguments. So she may have encountered people who have actually argued it that way. So I'm not denigrating her over straw manning it, but I think if you want to make your best case, you have to steel man your opponent's argument. And that would mean taking it the way I mentioned it earlier, which is Tolkien wouldn't necessarily hate gays. He would just not approve morally of their lifestyle. I can disapprove morally of a lot of things and still be friends with people. I have friends and family that I care deeply about whose lifestyle choices I don't agree with morally. That's that's a possibility in this world. So, you know, the idea that, you know, that has to her undercutting that argument necessarily works in favor of hers doesn't work. She can undercut that argument, but hers, she still has to build hers on its own merits. And so I think when we look through the lens of, you know, what's evidence for versus what's evidence inconsistent with, consistent with, a lot of the evidence just ends up being, well, it's consistent with either approach. There's really nothing that I can think of. I, I can't think of a single piece of evidence that anybody's ever raised which clearly favors, as opposed to merely being consistent with, the theory that Frodo and Sam are gay. But there's a lot of evidence on the other side that does tend the other way. Tolkien was a Catholic, and as far as we know, adhered to the moral teachings of the Catholic Church, and therefore would have opposed gay relationships. Doesn't mean he hated gays, but it does mean that he wouldn't put one in his story. So, you know... I think to the extent we have evidence on that question, it favors the other side. You know, we've got evidence of all kinds of, you know, intimate relate intimate physical contact between characters that definitely don't point to romance and therefore we can't take any of Frodo and Sam's as being anything other than that. Frodo and Sam, yes, have a very close bond, especially by the end of the story. At the very beginning, not really that much. They're friends, but they're not nearly as close as they are at the end. But Tolkien himself would have recognized the fact that, you know, when you go through that with somebody, you're going to have a close relationship with them. There is something between you that nobody else has that's going to be there. And that goes back to another issue, the whole idea of officers and Batmen sometimes having romantic relationships, not just close friendships. Yeah, okay, that did happen. You know, Alan Turing was outed as a homosexual. These things happened, but none of them imply that Tolkien was thinking in that way. Yeah, officers and Batman had close relationships. Tolkien probably had a close relationship with his Batman. Some of them being homo-romantic doesn't mean that Tolkien's was or that he was thinking about that when he wrote Frodo and Sam's story. There's just... All of these things, it's like if you look at the evidence and it's like, okay, but what does this actually imply? None of them really imply much. They don't. And, and they don't imply much either way, really is what I'm saying. And they don't imply that they were or that they weren't. Most of the evidence doesn't cut either way. I think the main evidence you're going to find is that within the story, all the clearly romantic characters are, you know, opposite-sex couples. And... 
Tolkien being a practicing Catholic, as we have to assume he was until we have evidence to the contrary, would not have approved morally of a homosexual lifestyle. And therefore, you know, whether you agree with him on that or not is irrelevant. The point is, as Molly led off with, she's going by authorial intent. You don't have to like the intent, but if you're going to go with it, that's what you're stuck with. So that, I think, is why this argument ultimately does not work. So I'm going to link, like I said, to the Polygon piece where she makes all this argument and presents all this evidence. I'm going to link to my earlier video on the issue of authorial intent versus death of the author in case you're interested in that. I'll also link to my Gondor and transition response because why not have all the controversial stuff in one place? And other than that, you can make up your own mind. Tell me what you think in the comments. Tell me if you have any other arguments that you've ever heard on this issue that you think are better than Ostertags. And with that said, if you did like the video and thought it was a useful examination of this topic, please do give it a thumbs up and share it around. Please subscribe to the channel and click the bell icon if you want to get all the videos and never miss one. You can also catch me on Rumble and Odyssey and on various podcast platforms. And you can support me over at Patreon. And, of course, I'm on Twitter at JRRTLore if you want to catch some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namariye. No